Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Emma Fabriguet. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 5 of our in-depth series on climate change. People in Ethiopia see this dam as a way to set right historical wrongs. The consequences of what happens within one country has ramifications for everyone else. Today, we have two guests. First, I'll be interviewing Annette McClintock on the Egypto-Ethiopian Nile dispute. Later, Jen will be interviewing Professor Stephen Wald on conflict, the internationalization of climate change, and the Amazon. We begin with Annette McClintock. So first, I'll get you to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your professional background, your academic background, what you're interested in, just so the listeners can get to know you a bit better. Yeah, so I am currently completing my Bachelor of Arts, my honours degree at the University of Melbourne. My background is in geopolitical security, gender policy in international relations. I was the Middle East and North Africa Fellow with the Young Australians in International Affairs And I'm currently the senior correspondent at YDS, but I was previously the Sub-Saharan Africa content writer. So Africa is a continent that I think I have the most experience writing in and personal experience as well. I lived in South Africa for 10 years. Well, that brings us right into our case study. What we'll talk about today is the Egyptian-Ethiopian Nile dispute. So some of our audience members might have heard of tensions between Egypt, Ethiopia and Sudan over a dam project on the Nile River. Could you just briefly bring us up to speed on what's been going on there? This particular conflict is actually very slow burning. I guess to sort of explain it, we do need to have a rudimentary understanding of the geography of the Nile Basin. The Nile is made up of two rivers, which is the White Nile and the Blue Nile. The Blue Nile starts in Ethiopia, runs up through Sudan, where it joins with the White Nile, and then ends up in Egypt. Historically, Egypt and Sudan have had control of most of the Nile's waters and the projects that happen on those waters, despite the fact that the Nile doesn't actually start in those countries. Now, in early 2010, the Egyptian government decided that they wanted to harness the power of the Nile River to build a hydroelectric dam Ethiopia, like many African countries, is growing very, very rapidly developing and they need energy to do that. And hydroelectricity is a form of clean energy that they can utilize to power their development and sustain their population growth. Egypt decided to build this dam right on the border with Sudan. The dam is known as the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam and it is a massive, massive dam in terms of area size larger than London. And it is going to generate electricity to fuel most of Ethiopia and then some so they can export that electricity. Now, what the concern is for Sudan and for Egypt is that now there's a massive dam essentially controlling the flow of the water into these countries 
but the gist of it is that for 10 years now, all three of these countries have been trying to come up with some sort of agreement to regulate the water flows while this dam is being built on the Blue Nile. So then there have been regional and international efforts to bring about a peaceful solution between Egypt and Ethiopia in particular. How successful would you say that these efforts have been? Not very, to be completely honest. Since the dam started construction in 2011, multiple multilateral organisations have gotten involved trying to broker an agreement Initially, there was an international panel of experts that was set up. It included people from Ethiopia, from Sudan and Egypt and some other like international observers. They tried to write a report on how the dam should be constructed. Some of what was written in the report was just outright rejected by Egypt. Egypt ended up leaving the negotiations in 2014 altogether because they just said that Ethiopia was not cooperating 2014, another committee was set up that has largely failed to broker any sort of agreement. 2019, we see other major players like the US step in. That being said, you know, we do have to understand that Egypt has a very close diplomatic relationship with the US. Naturally, Ethiopia was a little bit skeptical of US involvement. The US in 2020, ended up suspending economic assistance to Ethiopia because they said you're not making any progress on negotiating these agreements. October 2020, this phone call came out with President Trump where he was basically saying that if Ethiopia doesn't do something, they're going to have to take more stringent measures. So Ethiopia is very, very distrustful of the US involvement in these agreements. Other organizations such as the African Union tried to broker agreements. They may have been seen as a more neutral player. Unfortunately, these agreements also didn't really get very far. So where we're currently now is that Ethiopia has started filling the dam. It largely completed construction in 2020 and they've started filling the dam and there's no agreement in place for how the filling of this dam is going to be regulated. And so what does that mean for Egypt and Sudan, for example, in the way that Ethiopia would be filling the dam? It's really complicated for Egypt. It's really a sort of worst case scenario because what they were actually really looking for was for an agreement that's going to regulate two things. The first one is that Ethiopia is going to fill the dam slowly enough to ensure that there's going to be no impact downstream on Egyptian water levels. And this is really important because Egyptians still has a large part of their economy is still agrarian. Their farmers rely on this water. If Ethiopia fills the dam too quickly, those farmers aren't going to have access to the water they need to conduct their farming activities. And that's going to have wide ranging impacts on food security, on economic output. So they were really hoping for an agreement that would, I guess, slow down Ethiopia's filling of this dam. Sudan is in a much more complicated position because on one hand, if they don't get the same water levels, if their water reserves are impacted as well, then yes, same as Egypt, their agrarian output would be impacted. However, 
Sudan also stands to benefit from the dam because it will regulate water flows in times of flooding. We know that Sudan had some really bad floods last year. It could actually be really beneficial for them. And the other thing as well is that Sudan could also benefit from the cheap electricity that could come from this hydroelectric dam. So obviously then for Sudan, if Ethiopia ends up filling the dam quicker, they could get all of these benefits sooner. So they are sort of caught in the middle. So given the impact on climate change you've already delved into, if we can go more in depth, what would you say will happen to the local population living along the downstream Nile if the filling of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam proceeds as the Ethiopian government wants it to? Yeah, well, I mean, it's this classic story that we're seeing all over the world, which is that if people don't have access to the water that they need, they are going to have to find other work. If these farmers don't have the water that they need to fund their farming activities, they might need to go to the cities, placing even greater strain on the infrastructure, the water, the food. You'll see massive internal displacement if there's less water running through the Nile. That's bad for a whole range of reasons. Again, you know, to add some nuance to it, in the case of Sudan, it may actually be a good thing. It it may be beneficial to the local populations because they won't have to react to these severe floods that happen every few years. So it is a little bit complicated. It's not necessarily the worst case situation for every downstream country. Definitely for Egypt, they are very, very worried. Of course. And then, so do you believe that the conflict between Ethiopia and Egypt is likely if the dam crisis is not resolved within satisfaction? Realistically, it is sort of reaching a crisis point at the moment. Since 2011, when the dam started being constructed, both countries, Ethiopia and Egypt, have threatened military action. You had Abiy Ahmed basically saying, if we need to mobilize our armies, we can have you know millions of troops ready to go. And they're both quite big countries. They both have large populations. They are both capable of military action. What has changed is that Ethiopia has actually started filling the dam. So whereas before it was maybe just a war of words, there is a real chance right now that both of them could go into an armed conflict. Again, that being said, there have been some accusations of trying to undermine the dam in ways that's not a military conflict. I know, for example, Ethiopia has accused Egypt of sending fighters to Eritrea when Ethiopia was in conflict with Eritrea, trying to distract the Ethiopian government from this project and diverting resources. In 2018, the operating manager of the dam was found dead. So I guess there was that accusation that foul play may have occurred. So is it necessarily going to lead to a military conflict? I wouldn't be so sure, but both countries definitely have the capability of undertaking something like that. And what would you say is the sentiment in the three respective nations in terms of their local population and how they perceive the issue? Sometimes things get left at a state level and it's a debate between states, but how involved would you say is the local community? Yeah, this is a great question because it goes back to the history of Nile. 
it plays such an important part, I guess, in the national consciousness of these countries. So Egypt, going back to the 1920s, like I was saying, in these colonial era agreements, basically got full control of the Nile. They were able to essentially veto any project that was occurring on the Nile, Sudan to a lesser extent, but similar. So the people in Egypt do feel like they have a right to Nile. They have a right to determine what happens on the Nile. And then in Ethiopia, a country that never had colonization to the point of any other African country. They're very proud of how they're developing and they see this dam as a way to set right the historical wrongs created through these colonial agreements. And they say the the Nile starts in Ethiopia. We should be allowed to have a say about what we do with this water. For a hundred years, Egypt has had control of this Nile. It's now time for us to take it back. On top of that, keeping in mind that Ethiopia is growing very, very quickly and developing and getting people out of poverty through projects like these. So they do see it as a sense of, I guess, national pride, you know, that they are, they are lifting their citizens out of poverty. Like right now, I think something like 65% of people in Ethiopia don't have access to electricity. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam will give each and every Ethiopian citizen access to power, plus then more power to be able to export to other countries. So being such a massive regional player, I think it's really, really important for the citizens of Ethiopia. Absolutely. Obviously, it's like a commodity and it also represents, like you're saying, with the nationalism that will boost them to be more legitimate as a state. Yeah, I think citizens in all three countries are very invested about how this dam is going to turn out. Definitely. Well, this has been definitely an interesting conversation and I have learned so much just through this because I didn't know how rich it was in history and how it's so political at the same time. But if somebody wanted to reach out to you and learn more about uh, this topic or about the research that you do or the work that you do, where would they be able to find you? You can connect with me on LinkedIn or send me an email to my YDS email as well. So it's just Annette McClintock at theyoungdiplomats.com, I think. And yeah, we can have a little bit conversation about water security in uh, North Northeast Africa. Looking forward to it. Well, Annette, thank you so much for joining me here today and talking about such an important topic. And hopefully we'll be able to interview you for more updates sometime soon. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Emma. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. That was Annette McClintock on the Egypto-Ethiopian Nile dispute. When we return, Jen interviews Professor Stephen Walt on the Amazon. Do you love global questions? Then you'd be happy to know that we run events all through the year. Find us on your socials. Search Young Diplomat Society to keep up to date with upcoming events. Welcome to Global Questions by YDS. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. Today, I'm joined by Stephen M. Walt, a professor of international affairs at Harvard University, 
John F. Kennedy School of Government. He has written many articles for foreign policy on climate change, politics, and who will save the Amazon. We discuss conflict and the internationalization of climate change. So what are the tools available to the international community to force states to take proper care of environmental assets of international significance within their territories, like such as the Amazon? Well, uh, part of the problem is there aren't a lot of attractive tools uh, for dealing with this. The international system is set up uh, on the basis of sovereign territorial states, and the prevailing norm is that states can pretty much do what they want inside their own borders. Now, there are some limits to that. Uh, you know, states aren't allowed to, say, pollute a river that then flows into another country. At least uh, we've dealt with that problem. We've dealt with problems like acid rain and other pollutants that move from one place to another. So it's not as though there aren't any tools at all, but in general, it's very difficult. And if you think about the most extreme forms of sanctions, like the use of military force, you know, that's a really quite extreme step that violates all sorts of other principles as well. So I think in order to deal with that, the most likely pressure is going to be largely economic, and it'll take a form of both carrots and sticks. There might be threats of boycotts or sanctions against countries that are doing environmentally irresponsible things. But on the other hand, the international community might also be willing to help countries um, if there's an economic cost to protecting a resource within their uh, borders. The international community might want to subsidize them or pay them, in effect, not to violate or not to pollute. In the case of the Amazon, not to fully develop the Amazon because that will damage the environment more broadly. Uh, but that has economic consequences for Brazil. And that's probably a better way to proceed than just issuing threats for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And what would it mean to internationalize a region of global environmental concern? I think what it means is, is simply to say that the consequences of what happens in a particular part of the world that happens to be within one country or largely within one country has ramifications, has repercussions for everyone else. Um, and it's basically the rest of the world saying, you know, for historical reasons, this happens to be located in your territory, but what you do with it is going to affect all of us. And therefore, uh, we have an interest in trying to get you to handle that resource responsibly. Notice, by the way, though, there's a lot of inconsistency and even hypocrisy here, because what the United States, India, China, Japan, Russia, and other industrialized countries are doing on their territory has effects on everyone else. I just listed the top five producers of greenhouse gases. So these are the five countries that are doing the most to warm up the planet right now. But they're very hard to put a lot of pressure on because they're big, powerful states. Four of those five greenhouse gas producers have nuclear weapons. It's pretty hard to threaten them, even though they should be doing things inside their own countries to reduce the burning of fossil fuels out of self-interest, but also because that's in the interest of the rest of the planet. And you spoke about the military before as like a not very preferred tool, but could physical force be used to oblige states to comply with international environmental expectations? 
You know, in theory, uh, yes, uh, you could threaten them, but that's really the last resort for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, threats uh, to use the military immediately provoke nationalist resistance. Uh, you know, when I've written about this in the context of Brazil, just to raise the issue, I got lots and lots of uh, emails from people in Brazil saying, you know, you basically you're threatening us. That's totally unfair, which is not what I was trying to do at all. But so if you immediately start making threats and including the threats to use force, you're going to get a nationalist backlash. You're less likely to get the kind of cooperation that you want. The second reason, of course, is that warfare itself is environmentally destructive. And if you imagine fighting a, a war in the area that you're trying to protect, you're actually going to harm the resource uh, that you're interested in saving. And for that reason, it would really be a, a resort you'd turn to only in really extreme circumstances and hopefully not even then. Yeah, interesting. So what are the challenges facing the internationalization of climate change? Well, I think part of the problem is the, this disparity in, in resources. The countries who are most responsible for causing the problems are the large uh, in many cases, heavily industrialized, in other cases, very large population countries. You know, a country like Bolivia or Belize uh, is not responsible for a whole lot of environmental harm because they're small and they don't produce a lot of harmful effects on others. And as I was saying before, the difficulty is the ones who are most responsible for the trouble are the hardest to put any real pressure on. Um, I think almost all of these areas, and climate change is the most obvious and, and vivid one, this will require multilateral approaches. You're going to have to get a lot of agreement and a lot of buy-in, certainly from as many countries as possible, but primarily from the countries who are most responsible for the emission of greenhouse gases as well. And I think there's been progress on that because there is this common recognition that we have we face a really serious uh, problem here uh, that fortunately is now the, uh, the case in the United States as well. We now have an administration that isn't denying the problem. And so, you know, with hopefully some international consensus on the problem, you can then get agreements on measures and standards to address them. That problem is a little bit different than the problem of unique resources like the Amazon that happen to be, you know, in just one part of the world and are largely controlled by just one country. Not entirely, but largely. Yeah. So taking the Amazon as an example, what would it look like if that region was internationalized? Could such an effort lead to an invasion by the international community? I think it's very unlikely. I mean, the issue is an international issue because what happens to the Amazon does affect, uh, you know, the neighboring countries and conceivably could affect others. So you can internationalize the issue by having other countries begin to raise it and start talking with Brazil, talking to other countries that also have parts of the Amazon rainforest in their territory as well. It's not just Brazil. But you have to then talk to them and say, look, we have a common concern here. We don't want to put pressure on you. We don't want to uh, undercut your economic development. We're not telling you what to do. We're saying we have a problem here and we need to work out certain solutions. 
It's worth noting, by the way, that previous Brazilian governments were taking steps to try and protect the Amazon and doing much more about it than the current government of Brazil has been doing. But I think the, the solution to this is not to sort of immediately reach for threats, try to organize large coalitions to uh, you know, impose their will on other countries, but rather to try and get at a consensus with those countries that we all have a common interest in protecting this resource. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's actually all the questions I have for you today. That was really interesting. Thanks so much for your time. Not at all. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out Global Questions and the Young Diplomat Society on social media, where you'll find more information about the topics we cover and upcoming events. We'll see you next week. Bye.